say your name was again? Tammy. you, Tammy. Hello and welcome to the Lodgers Sorted Cinema's Twin Peaks podcast. We are your grade A hosts. Uh, my name is Simon Howell. I'm joined as always by Kate Radebaum. And uh, joining us this week is uh, new to the show, special guest Byron Davies. Hi, thank you for having me. Now, Byron, could you tell uh, our audience at home a little bit about yourself? I'm a PhD student in philosophy at Harvard, but I'm keenly interested in philosophy and the visual arts and I'm sorry, film film and philosophy and the visual arts uh i've been interested in lynch for a long time you could say it's even a prenatal or primordial thing my father showed a racer head uh in college and created a riot uh it was uh so something of a feature of our family lore uh anyway i've uh, been watching twin peaks since i watched the reruns uh on bravo when i was 15 or so and but only this year, in preparation for the new series, have I really delved into watching it from beginning to end. So it's um, it's very exciting for me to to be on the show. Just so listeners are clear, when Byron says that his dad started a riot, he's not speaking metaphorically. It's not like oh, it was a riot. No, there was a literal riot in it was Missouri, right in in uh, in seventy eight. In seventy eight, yeah, um, and my father was the only person on the contract who signed the contract for the theater that night. No one had any idea um, what Eraserhead was uh, at that point, at least among the audience. And so supposedly someone threw a bottle of Southern Comfort at the screen. And when after months of evading the theater owner, my father finally snuck back into the theater in order to see the Rocky Horror Picture Show along the contours of Tim Curry's face, he could see uh, the the stitching where someone had thrown a bottle of Southern Comfort into the screen months before. I think Lynch would have enjoyed that <laughs> as an occurrence. Yeah, I think he would have. I was also really struck by like sort of the prologue to that story that you were telling us about how your your, your father, when he saw Eraserhead um, for the first time, obviously before he tried to program it, um, that he had such an intense experience of, of watching uh, watching the film that he had blacked out portions of it um which is sort of it's interesting to me both as sort of an indicator of what lynch does to people and also just sort of the 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 sensorial like the, the sort of the our general desensitization that like i've seen i've been in some some pretty intense screenings like i've seen some really overwhelming films some very emotional films some extremely graphic films like i i, I go to a lot of genre film fests and i see some really intense stuff I've never approached anything like blacking out at a movie or, you know, the, the the things that they would report happening in like, you know, screenings of the, the original run of The Exorcist or anything like that. I, I feel like we're missing out on these like visceral, um, possibly dangerous experiences of movie going these days. There's a story of someone fainting during a screen of Blue Velvet. And when he came to, he wanted to go back in and see the, the end of the movie. 
<laughs> I think I have heard that story as well. I've actually been at a screening of a film where someone fainted in front of me, and it was terrifying. And it wasn't a good film. It was that movie, um, 127 Hours, the uh, Danny Boyle film. And I was in one of the earliest screenings of it at Telluride, and uh, somebody slumped over in their chair, and the person like next to them was shaking them, trying to wake them up, and could not for the life of them wake them up. We had to bring in like emergency services and... Anyway, and that was the only two people fainted during that film at Telluride. But uh, anyway, again, not a good film, that one. Uh, whereas with Lynch and everything else, it's like there is a very impressive sense in which there is sort of uh, this radical effect of art, which I, I very much appreciate. Yeah, whereas nowadays you have to go see like, I mean, the only time that I've ever witnessed actual fainting in a movie theater, I think, was the Fantasia screening of a Serbian film, which like, yeah, like... If if you have to go to that level of extreme these days to get people fainting, you know that uh, you you know that that window is moving. Anyway, we're we're sort of off topic because we've got a, a massive massive episode to talk about this week. Um, part seven, possibly AKA, there's a body. All right. Um, I just want to note the dramatic irony of last week. We were we spent a lot of time talking about how this this new season seemed to be sort of annihilating what came before. And was sort of, um, you might say, was getting off on being withholding. And uh, this week, as if to prove all of us wrong, um, maybe we can talk about the extent to which this is really true. Uh, Lynch and Frost seem to sort of give the people what they want to an extent. And the result is radically different from what we've got in the last couple of weeks. We get a lot of exposition. We get a lot of specific plot discussion both of stuff in this season and most surprisingly like very specific plot and character beats are referenced from the original run, including the, um, the sort of last, the, the sort of bedeviled last run of episodes. There's even a reference to Harold Smith, uh, which I was I found quite shocking. Um, a lot happens. We see a lot of characters. We, and perhaps most um, surprisingly, we spend a lot of time. We spend the vast majority of the episode in Twin Peaks um, which was a, a specific grievance that I heard you know, that Matt mentioned and other people have mentioned. So um, we'll sort of return to these uh, ideas as we keep going. But I guess I should ask you, Byron, you know, what's this is sort of the, the usual question we ask our, our new folks, but um, we know about your, about your dad and his experiences with Lynch, but uh, di did you sort of grow up with a Lynch fixation as a result of your father's uh, misadventures, I guess we could say? Lynch was always curious for me because there's this other story that I shared with you guys earlier, which is that my after my father showed me the pins uh, that he had made for, uh, promoting the Eraserhead screening with Henry Spencer on them, I saw on the pins copyright David Lynch. So that was my first time seeing the name David Lynch. And it was around the time also when Lost Highway was being promoted. And so I saw a commercial for Lost Highway on TV. And I, I immediately thought, oh my God, there are two directors named David Lynch. <laughs> <laughs> so in, in a way, I've that's been sort of the, the, one of the contradictions at, at the heart of, of David Lynch has been there with me from the beginning, how someone could do something so um, experimental and underground and yet um, be promoted in such mainstream outlets because I was watching the commercial for Lost Highway on on, on network TV. And, um, and so I've always been fascinated by that. Um, and one thing that in particular that's fascinated me about Lynch is his 
deep concern with, um, I don't know the right phrase for it, I guess biological processes. I think it's really coming to the fore in, um, in, in this series um, that his, his concern with birth, regeneration, death, and decay, um, and all the different ways in which ways of going about these processes, including regeneration, the creation of a uh, Frankenstein monster-like or golem-like uh, creature, like, like whatever Dougie is or was. Um, these are things that are very much on my mind and aren't so explicit, weren't so explicit for me in the case of the original series, these, these issues of, of, of biological processes. I think that is fascinating. So I don't know, Simon, do you want me to sort of give my overall view of the episode or should we just sort of dig into this question, these questions that Byron's bringing up? Uh, you can start wide if you want. Uh, all right. Well, um, oh, I asked that and then now all I can think of is how to respond to Byron's question. Um, well, anyway, let, I, I think for the overall question, it was interesting that, uh, Simon, you brought up the, um, this idea of it being a very sort of exposition-heavy uh, episode and sort of giving us a lot to get back into what maybe people think they've wanted out of the show. Uh, I think it's fascinating when you kind of go back, and again, I've had the chance to rewatch it a, a little bit, so I maybe have more familiarity with it than people have just seen it once. But it's interesting when you go back how, how the show actually feels kind of bifurcated. The first half of it is quite exposition-heavy, and you get all of these plot points and forward movement. And then again, the second half of it is where it is set more in Twin Peaks is um, where we get, we sort of revert back to the lynching kind of um, aspects of sort of long sequences that are much more heavily focused on sort of mood and, and presence and atmosphere than they are about kind of um, narrative development. Uh, and, and we can sort of work through all of those things. But for me, I thought it was, I think there are a couple of sort of funny jokes in, in the episode that I can just list now because they're at the front of my head that relate to this idea of it being an exposition heavy episode. Um, because that second scene that we get with Hawk and, uh, the new Sheriff Truman and they go through the pages of Laura's diary. And, and of course, there are any number of things we can pull apart about that, right? I mean, there's so many, there's such sort of joy, I think, for fans to see those pages come back and to like, have this idea that, that Lynch has somehow magically, like, retroactively um, now <laughs> stretched the previous narrative of the show out 27 years. Like, there's there's a joke in there somewhere, right, with Lynch being attracted to television because you can just sort of push things, you know, push the ending of things off and off and off and off. And now there's this great idea that we have picked something up 27 years later and it sort of extended the life of the previous show in this really kind of clear, interesting way. Anyway, so we have that scene with all of this sort of exposition, and it's not a very exciting scene in terms of kind of filmmaking, right? It's uh, Hawk and Sheriff Truman just sort of shot reverse shot, and it's almost funny how, like, just sort of blunt some of the dialogue is from Hawk, you know, like, oh, the guy who came out of the lodge was not good Cooper, you know, this kind of stuff. And so you, you think, like, oh, this is sort of more straightforward television, and then flash forward to, like, scenes later when you get um, Cole on the airplane uh, with the other characters, and Cole offhandedly references uh, Erev, the backwards word. And, and it's like a, there's a major kind of plot thing there. Like, like Cole expects that audience members know what he's talking about. And mm -hmm. for, for the life of me, I was like, if you're not a super Twin Peaks nerd who's like reading the internet and, and following all of these sort of people parsing everything out, 
I don't think most people would have caught that Kyle McLaughlin, you know, five episodes earlier said a word backwards. <laughs> and, and so the show is doing this funny thing where it's like whiplashing between very obvious forms of information delivery and again, maintaining this complete sort of, um, obscurity of everything on the other hand, uh, which I love. And, uh, I'm hoping that we'll have a chance to talk about, uh, Lynch's connection to another filmmaker that I know Byron is quite familiar with named, uh, Jacques Rivette, because Rivette has such a great set of connections to this sort of obscurity kind of conspiracy set of things. So maybe we can come back to that. But, um, I also just wanted to respond a little bit to what Byron wanted to say about death and aging, because I think it's going to be a key theme of the discussion. But Simon, did you want to sort of do your overview of the episode first? Um, I mean, I, I sort of did already in the sense of, um, you know, mentioning that this episode both does and doesn't give what, I mean, maybe the most interesting way is, you know, one of the most common idioms about um, among TV critics is that TV shows teach you how to watch them. And if you apply that to this season, um, there are some very perverse lessons being taught. And, uh, and I mean that in, in a loving way. I mean, we've had, in the previous six episodes, so many sort of distended sequences, so many just sort of like, at least at first, like baffling choices. Um, and then it, it feels like, so that when we get to this episode and we do have that sort of release of exposition and these, and these references to explicit plot points, it feels like um, it's, I mean, we sort of saw a version of this early when we when we had sort of that um the the roadhouse sequence at the end of episode two acting as this big moment of emotional release and connecting to these characters again after all the the extreme weirdness of of those first two episodes and here it, it feels like maybe what we're being trained for is that is actually not that we're going to get more of this that we're actually going to get like more and longer and more extreme stretches of weirdness followed by perhaps like longer longer chunks again that feel more like the old show. Like they're sort of moving back and forth between this, these, uh, these sorts of narratives. Um, I don't know, but if the idiom that, you know, TV shows teach you how to watch them is true, then maybe um, I'm just, so all I'm saying is that anyone who got super excited about this episode in particular, because it seemed more conventional, uh, maybe just rein in those expectations a little bit. Um, because I think if we're, if we're paying attention, we should know not to, um, not to expect that. And I, I, I think for me personally, one of the more interesting sources of tension watching this episode was, you know, I got excited too um, when I real when we sort of got these more um, sort of conventionally pe- Twin Peaksian um, sequences or set of scenes, and there are a lot of them. And then I thought to myself, like, am I, am I enjoying this extra? Like sort of questioned myself because I have really been enjoying just sort of how, for lack of a better term, how extra this season has been in terms of just how, how willing it is to push boundaries. And like we sort of talked about last week to, um, to really make us question the nature of like, what is Twin Peaks? So I, I sort of felt guilty about how much I enjoyed the show reverting back to its old form a little bit. Um, I don't know if anyone else may, I'm, I'm probably just overthinking it cause I like to feel guilty about things. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I, Byron, did this episode kind of strike you as, as more connected to the old show, or or was it sort of a different set of things that seemed different this episode? Or I, I thought that this episode foregrounded relationships in an interesting way that reminded me of the ways in which the original series would juxtapose different kinds of unhappy relationships. You know, obviously, Big Ed and Nadine, Leo and Shelley, and, and as well as several others, you know, Pete and Catherine, 
relationships that have come to some sort of standstill or where the character has somehow transformed or weren't wasn't the the person that the other person in the the other the other partner expected and we certainly see a bit of this in, in you know certainly in the transformation of Cooper to the shock and disturbance of, of Diane I think that's why it's so important that the episode more or less ends with with this this coda involving Ashley Judd and uh, and her character's husband the um, the evident deterioration of a relationship having to do with a transformation beyond one's control namely namely an illness um, yeah. and the way that that's supposed to somehow domesticate for us make more familiar the kind of transformation the other kind of mystical transformation evil transformation that uh, that that Bob can bring about I, that's I think that's a super interesting connection I would not have thought of that connection between uh, Ashley Judd and the husband character whose name I'm unfortunately forgetting uh, but he's he's yeah Simon do you know what it is played by Hugh Dillon that's all I know and it's it was very, it's weird to say, it's I, I don't think it was a deliberate bit of casting but Hugh Dillon usually plays like physically imposing characters i mean he's i think of him as you know the the, the punk singer from hardcore logo um but like literally the last thing that i saw him in was in a um in a guest role on the expanse where he plays uh, like a like a military commander in space like this is the, that's the sort of character that he used sounds very silly but he you know he usually plays you know he plays cops military people or people of, who are imposing or have some sort of authority so to see him in this very uh, diminished capacity, like physically diminished capacity, is uh, is really surprising. It's a really it's a nicely counterintuitive bit of casting. Yeah, and it's quite an effective moment. I I, I quite like both of those scenes: the scene with Ashley Judd uh, and Ben Horn, and uh, the husband. And and like to try to sort of build on what Byron is saying, the Ashley Judd and the Ben Horn sequence is quite an interesting inversion of maybe some of these things that I think are pretty common at Twin Peaks. This idea of sort of um, stuck relationships or relationships where someone has changed and so the relationship is very much out of joint or something now whereas here with Ben Horn and Ashley Judd there's this very um odd but very affecting like flirtation between the two of them like it's a very sweet kind of tender thing which is not I, I feel like that's not a mode that's brought very often to um you know uh, people sort of of the age that Ben Horn and Ashley Judd are a in the first place but then also in terms of a flirtation in terms of a kind of extramarital flirtation it, it just felt like a very unusual way of of um introducing something like that but it was sort of beautiful i don't know i quite love that sequence the hum this idea of course this almost joke at the end that it's sort of josie in the walls or something which you know is it's a funny idea but i think the whole sequence is is quite lovely and then you have it of course um very quickly mirrored when she returns home and and her husband is there and uh, you know, whether it's this idea that she's sort of overreacting to him because she feels guilty or whether there really it does seem to be this sort of very negative kind of underlying thing there that hints at much larger things. There's also more to talk about here, I guess, in terms of these questions of like introducing new characters and sort of bringing in new storylines that I think links up interestingly to what Byron got at at the beginning with this question of death and decay. And uh, And I think we should dig into that a little bit because it's so prominent in this episode for different reasons but um the death and decay stuff is interesting i feel like it's been a common thing we've talked about but i feel like i like byron's point about this idea of like 
rebirth and regeneration as the sort of accompanying of that, because I hadn't really thought about that in relation to these new episodes, but it, it is very much there. And it's really interesting. I mean, even just this idea of there being sort of a new set of people in the town, like this sort of younger set or, or not all of them are younger, but this newer set of people that, that the show is sort of being reborn through and being given over to them or something uh, on the one hand, but then also on the other hand, this idea of like, of almost failed rebirths, like Coop is a kind of uh, not quite successful, <laughs> like rebirth of somebody into the world. And I wanted to point this out too, because Olivier uh, came up with this idea when we were watching the show. And uh, I hadn't thought about this. And I don't feel like it's something I've heard people talk about very much, but is this idea that, um, you know, we're all, everyone get, it tends to get very caught up in this idea that we're kind of sick of Dougie and we just want him to go back to the way he was, which is not really something this podcast has been <laughs> that pro. But anyway, this seems to be a common sentiment. The, this idea that when, in the sequence in this episode, when Dougie and Naomi Watts, who we should talk about at least at one point because she's amazing in this episode and the whole show, but uh, Dougie and Naomi Watts and the three cops are in the office and, and they're talking about the stolen car. And Olivia was like, oh man, you realize it's only been like three days since Dougie has been out of the Black Lodge. And and you forget that because the, like the timelines of everything are so stretched out and, and everything mm -hmm. seems so slow. It's been three narrative days since Dougie got out of the Lodge, which uh, is an interesting sort of question about this sort of idea of like a rebirth or somebody getting used to the world or something. I love in that scene how the cops become so deferential to them as soon as it's clear that they are conveying sort of white bourgeois respectability, that the, the boss has come in to be supportive. And despite the fact that Dougie says nothing, uh, pretty much nothing. And um, it's uh, just one of the, one of the funnier scenes uh, in the episode. I love I love the way that Naomi Watts like cows the cops. I love it. I, I just think like, she has no patience for this. She's like... <laughs> She's like, I don't care what you guys are asking about. This is nonsense. And she and she's just sort of on them. And she the the level of sort of certainty around the difficulties of her life and her just sort of not being willing to give anybody else an inch and she doesn't really care and she knows exactly how things are and she's on it. I don't know why, but I feel like that's not a character that you see very often. I like this, I, I don't know, the way the show is sort of both kind of celebrates and also turns her into a comedic figure, obviously, but sort of celebrates her her just general sort of can-do attitude. Like, at the same time as it's kind of, she can be a bit brusque or a bit sort of, like, annoying or something, she's also just so, she just gets things done. It's, it's very enjoyable to watch. I don't know. Well, and she stands in such contrast to, like, the vast majority of other characters who seem to be stuck in, in stasis. Even, like, the the... The sheriff's office, as much as we we like, um, you know Robert Forster and Robert, but that's an another example, by the way, of um, sort of a rebirth in the sense that we get we have a new Truman um, in a in a sense, and of course we we keep getting these reminders of the that yes, Sheriff Harry Truman does still exist in this world, and we and no, you don't get to see him, which I I find fascinating that they keep emphasizing when like anyone else would have would have maybe done away with it in one scene and never ever ever called attention to it interesting thing when it comes to regeneration and rebirth which is at the level of ideal types like marlon brando in in the wally brando character of marlon brando being uh, inhabited once again and once again inhabiting a, a different body and um and it harkens back to other kinds of uh regeneration of ideal types from hollywood or Hollywood is reproducing itself as an ideal type 
that we get in um, Elvis uh, being reincarnated in Nicolas Cage in Sailor and in, in uh, Wild mm. at Heart, um, and 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 you know other instances, you know, Rita Hayworth in, um, um, yeah. in Mulholland Drive. Drive. But yeah. I, I think what's particularly effective about this sort of thing, and what maybe what one role for the Wally Brando character might be here, is that whereas um, in other instances of this kind of thing in Lynch's films, and this is something that uh, certainly Wild at Heart was criticized for, was that it was just about the reproduction of these types, the repro- you know, just, just about the reproduction of the Elvis type or the types from The Wizard of Oz, but there was no contact with uh, concrete reality. What's really interesting and I think has a lot of potential in this series is the way that the reproduction of these types um, hits concrete reality with very, very real kinds of decay and death going on and in very tragic ways. Um, like, like, of course, in the first couple episodes, the, you know, just literally witnessing uh, Catherine Coulson in, in decay. Uh, and, and it's especially affecting because she's someone who's been with Lynch since the very beginning, since Eraserhead, since working on Eraserhead. And so you also have an interaction with this concern with the reproduction of ideal types uh, or the reproduction of a town, um, this very real concern with, with Lynch's own mortality that, that comes with his just seeing uh, actors and others who have been with him from the beginning dying. We should probably bring up here as well the uh, scene with Doc Hayward with Warren Frost, uh, who, uh, again, it's a little unclear. Like, Simon, you said you read this somewhere, but it wasn't confirmed or something about where he was doing those scenes from. I saw a reference to to his side of the sequence having been filmed in an Alzheimer's ward. I don't know if that's true or not. But I mean, it's we know that you know he he did pass away not too long after this was filmed. The episode is dedicated to him. Um, I mean, it's just it's worth pointing out just like on a pure level of representation that like the dying don't often make the literally physically dying don't often make appearances in TV and film. It just it isn't done. It's it's very much. It's sort of it's sort of an unspoken taboo that like you 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 just don't see that level of physical uh, mental decay. Um, you you know you see it dramatized a lot, but you don't often see it just sort of presented as what it is. Um, but even you know setting that aside, the, the sequence with Warren Frost is incredible um, <laughs> on a variety of levels. I mean, e- there's even like I wasn't expecting to, to it to be hilarious, but it is. I mean, everything with from. Uh, the sheriff's like pop-up Skype screen, which like now I want that. I didn't know that it existed, but now I need it. Um, the 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 details in the writing, like how uh, he um, Doc Hayward references the fact that he he couldn't remember what he had for breakfast yesterday, but he could remember um, you know the the events with uh, with not good Cooper, and then it to, to cap off the conversation, he talks about the breakfast he had that morning. Um, you know, like the, the fact that it's not just, you know, it's, they, it doesn't coast purely on just the, the, the affect of, you know, of seeing Warren Frost. They actually, you know, they, they, they did something really, uh, they did some really clever things with it. And, um, it's, I mean, it's just, it's an incredible sequence in all kinds of ways. In some ways, the original series had this character also, that is, it was in casting some, some actors from, 30 years earlier, like 
Richard Boehmer and Russ Tamblin yeah. and Piper Laurie, part of it was concerned with offering a snapshot of where these actors are now in middle age. Um, but part of it, and, and, and it's and part of that also has to do with its character as, as a soap opera and the expectation in a soap opera that characters are going to die and be born and, you know, to extreme extents, like I guess something like Coronation Street in the UK is like that. Uh, you have entire life cycles depicted, depicted on a soap opera. But because the show didn't run for very long, it could only offer a snapshot of lives. And so in some ways, this is the function, one function of, of the current series. Yeah, it's interesting, uh, Byron, like you had, Byron had sent us via a uh, message earlier um, selections from a book with that both Byron and I are quite familiar with, which is a uh, sort of, I guess you, if you want to call it like a ph- philosophical work by um, a philosopher named Stanley Cavell, uh, who has written quite a lot about film. And this was his first sort of foray into the world of film. And it was a book called The World Viewed, which was written actually around the same time as Eraserhead, I guess, uh, in the late 70s, right? I think 70, or early 70s and then late 70s. So anyway. The second edition is 79. That's what I'm thinking of as the second edition. But um, but anyway, so so Byron had sent these sort of selections from it. And, and in it, there's a sort of section where Cavell is talking about these Hollywood's kind of... Um, I don't know, I guess I'm not sure how to explain it, but the ways in which you can you can track in film um, these sort of movements of, of time, basically, by how they play out on kind of people's faces, particularly character actor, character actors uh, or stars that you're used to seeing and how, you know, despite uh, Hollywood sort of focus, Hollywood's focus on fiction, um, there ends up being this sort of creeping element of kind of what you might want to call documentary or sort of reality in that, which is that you, this repetition of using the same bodies ends up really marking out the changes in time. And like the way that Cavell talks about it is almost the mortality of, of the stars, the mortality of sort of everything is sort of an inevitable element of cinema in that regard. Um, and I think that really is an interesting point about Lynch. Like it, also Lynch's fascination with using the same actors, right? I mean, this is a very constant thing. I think, you know, Lynch certainly could have chosen all along to use sort of brand new people and it, and it would not have had nearly the effect. I mean, obviously Twin Peaks is a special case because he's going to bring some people back. But I think that element has always been there. I mean, I, my guess is that part of the reason why Lynch was was willing to come back to Twin Peaks was because it gave him exactly this opportunity to use the sort of same cast and to bring back other casts of people that he's familiar with, like Naomi Watts and Laura Dern. Um, and we should talk about Laura Dern a little bit in relation to this question of like aging and difference, because she has been... I think almost like Catherine Coulson, she has been such a, a steady figure in Lynch's work, right? Starting with uh, Blue Velvet. Um, there's an interesting question there. But anyway, I just love this idea of getting at this question of like repetition and how it it shows difference more than you might expect. Because it also links back to something I was trying to dig up a little bit when we were talking to Matt last week, which was this fascination that Lynch seems to have, uh, particularly in that last episode, of sort of repeating actual shots or like reenacting actual kind of sequences from the show itself to highlight even more how much things have changed. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I, uh, I, I want to thank Byron for making the connection to the way that soap operas uh, would you know keep actors and characters around uh, for a very, very long time, much more so than any other sort of televisual form, because it connects the show back to soaps, which we thought it wasn't doing anymore. But nope, it's still secretly doing it. Since we've already we've sort of danced around the subject, so I guess now we got to talk about Diane, um, who... I have to say that I, I, I follow a lot of um, film and Twin Peaks Twitterers 
and certainly the most um, infectious moment of probably the entire series so far was her uh, her gleeful f- you, Tammy, which I think, <laughs> I mean, how great is it just to watch uh, Laura Dern just like tear through this episode? She's pretty awesome in it. <laughs> she is, she is, um, she's I, I, heartbreaking. I, I mean, she's amazing. The, the sequence, um, really the whole, all of it, uh, with around Cooper is, is pretty breathtaking, but particularly the sequence when she comes out after she's been in this, um, enclosed space with Cooper. And by the way, there's some amazing stuff going on there in the cinematography of her face, the sort of low angle with her, with the wig, where you get, ref- like, it's almost a reference to both kind of Joan of Arc, uh, the, like, um, silent Joan of Arc, uh, the dryer film, but then also Godard's, like, references to Joan of Arc in Viva Seville, like, just something about the angle of her head uh, with the blunt bangs, with the black background. It's like this perfectly cinematic, iconic shot that I, I love that they did that. Rivette also has a Joan of Arc film which was paired with Fire Walk With Me at the Lincoln Center Rivette Lynch series a couple years ago. Oh, awesome. Uh, okay, you reminded me. We have to get back to Rivette in a sec, but I, the Dern thing, I basically just wanted to add that the stuff, when she uh, leaves the, the prison and she's outside with Cole, and she doesn't even have that many lines. Like, I think she has maybe, like, four phrases or something in that sequence that she says to Coop, but the, the depth of of emotion and, and pain and sort of this history that's hinted at there is, is pretty stunning. Um, I don't know. Duran just sort of knocks that out of a park. It's like all she's in the show for, you know, four scenes and all of a sudden she's sort of competing with Naomi Watts for like, who is the best on the show. Um, anyway, I thought she was stunning. And she really brings something out of Lynch as well in terms of uh, his performance where, you know, he's Lynch has really, in in the vast majority of his acting period, not just on this show, but if you think about, for instance, his appearance on Louis, like he's spent he spent a lot of, of time as a comic figure because he's really good at it. Um, but he's he's been uh, stretching as well this this season, and especially in this episode, and that that sort of final interaction between um, him and Diane, where they're at very close proximity, but he doesn't quite seem to know what to do with his hands and arms. Um, and it's just, it's very sort of tentative and tender and confused. And it feels like it's, it's, you know, they've been sort of toying with, um, with Cole slash Lynch and potential chauvinism. And there's like another sort of, this complicates that as well. Um, it's a, it's such a loaded sequence, um, on, in so many ways, but the way that it, that it even now extends to Lynch's performance, I think is really interesting. Yeah, I definitely agree about that. I agree that it, it's playing a role in these questions of of the Gordon Cole's character's relation to women and Lynch as a director's relation to women that the show has been sort of taking up, um, you know, to sometimes differing degrees of success, as we discussed last week to different degrees. But um I, I think there's something interesting there, too, in relation, and, and we don't have to talk about it at length, but I, I think it's worth bringing up that there's some interesting stuff going on with the Tammy Preston character on the plane sequence uh, that links up to what you're talking about there, Simon. I think I'm, I'm totally stealing this from somebody on Twitter. I don't remember who said this, but somebody on Twitter pointed out that the Tammy Preston character in that plane sequence um, has been totally kind of sidelined, even within the framing, right? Like, she's hidden, and she has to sort of force her way into the scene again, like, to sort of she's she's desperately always sort of trying to be relevant and trying to be present and the lynch right like when she's literally behind she's like behind the side of the plane she like 
pops out to like to like add a bit of dialogue or exposition or something yeah exactly oh olivier sort of saw that scene and he was like yeah it's like she's a kid like she's been put in like the back seat or something like she doesn't <laughs> she doesn't really get to participate and then when when again she sort of comes up and she's like i have relevant information lynch's res- <laughs> lynch's response is sort of this thing with the fingers which is amazing admittedly like the thing with the fingers is perfect um but again it, it's like his his relationship to her is sort of he says you've been passing tests left right and center and his response is just so here's another test like i'm just going to give you like more obscure information that you sort of have to keep sticking with like aka he's keeping her at the kids table she's not at the adult table and so that that in comparison to the sequence with Dern where again as you say it's like he he's I'm not he's completely thrown off by like how he knows he's supposed to be sort of in relation like caring in relation to her or, or he just doesn't understand what's happening and he's trying to kind of keep up with this in this caring way is such a different register and I think it it shows some very interesting stuff there there certainly. are several good fuck yous in in, in the, the episode <laughs> uh not just not just Diane saying fuck you to to Tammy to Gordon Cole and to Albert all of them but um, also Albert saying to Gordon Cole, you can hear me, which I thought was great. You know, the, the underline our suspicion that um, that his his lack of hearing is is very selective going back to his interaction with with Shelley in the second season. Um, that's, a, that's a great point. I like that. Another connection that someone else made that I, again, probably would not have thought of without a rewatch was the connection potentially between Cole and his manipulation of, of Tammy's fingers with the, uh, with the sequence of uh, Leland and, uh, and Laura. his daughter's hands, Laura's hands and they're unclean. That is, that's an interesting connection as well, for sure. I had not thought of that. Maybe, uh, maybe Cole will be the next, uh, the next passenger. <laughs> huh? Oh God, that's, that'd a, be something to watch. That's a depressing thought. Um, well, so the bringing up of Leland Palmer, I'm glad you brought him up, actually, Simon, because I wanted to bring these questions up that Byron and I talked briefly about them before we started here. But uh, these questions that I think are really relevant to this episode, which is the relationship of uh, something like Diane's presence in in this episode and her, not just presence, but her ability to, like, sort of voice, even if she doesn't articulate it directly, but, like, voice and, and express uh, this sort of history of violence. And of course, at this point, it hasn't been made clear that it's sexual violence, but this is like a really strong theme in this episode is we have both um, Diane's encounter with this person who has traumatized her in some way and attacked her in some way, clearly, uh, as well as the implication that, and this is all still conjecture, right? But the implication that Evil Coop has done something to Audrey, possibly impregnated her, raped her while she was unconscious, uh, at the end of the previous show. Um, and so all of this stuff is in the air. And there are really interesting questions here, I think, about how having a, you know, a, a person, a, a live woman on a show, uh, on an iteration of Twin Peaks, able to be present and be voicing their own history and their own pain is a, is a pretty big deal when the entire first run of the show was built on the absence of, of that person being able to do that. Like the pain suffusing everything and structuring everything, but her not being there. And then, of course, this sort of history of Fire Walk With Me doing that and people hating it and rejecting Fire Walk With Me for, like, not necessarily just for that reason, but that that was tied up in it. Um, and I think there's important things here. But I, I wanted to ask uh, Byron what you thought about that and we can keep talking about it. Well, I, I think that, so this goes back to some discussions Kate and I had 
about, again, about Stanley Cavell, about a different book that he has called Contesting Tears on the so-called Hollywood melodrama of the unknown woman and to what extent Twin Peaks and especially I had in mind Fire Walk With Me could be understood as belonging to that genre of um, about um, women who are somehow um, not acknowledged and about the um, possibility of, of, of the cinematic. Um, well, I mean, for, for Cavell, uh, he has he thinks that he, he points out that cinema and psychoanalysis have a common uh, history that they both began in 1895 um, with in the case of psychoanalysis with the publication of studies on hysteria. And um, he thinks that one issue in their common history is they're both being concerned with the stories of women. And um, I, I, I don't, know what else to say beyond that right now but so so i guess it is it is a question to what extent um uh twin peaks should be understood as belonging to that to that genre but i think the issues of acknowledgement um whether uh acknowledgement absence and 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 presence is extremely important in the case of diane because she has been um absent to an extent uh, in a way no other character has so far uh, been with us from the very beginning, but has not even not even been a voice, not even been um, an image on a videotape as as Laura Palmer had been. Uh, she's been nothing. And now she's been substantiated in a very important way and very compelling way. It's really kind of extraordinary to think that she's a character we really only met uh, in the previous episode. And only now, uh, and um, only, and even then, it was only one shot. And yet, it really does. I think this episode really does um, uh, belong to the kind of uh, uh, or fulfills the kind of promise that uh, something like Fire Walk with Me made to substantiate a character who had been altogether absent. Well, and not only not only was she like physically absent, but her only real contribution to the series for almost its entirety up until now was as a gag. Um, and you know, not, not as a person. So to have her suddenly manifest and to have this, you know, tragic weight as well as, you know, being just a flesh and blood person who seems pretty cool in general, um, is, is really, it's, it's quite something. How do we, by the way, I, I meant to ask you this off mic earlier, Kate, but I'll ask everyone now. Do we just assume that the guy in her apartment was like a boy toy? That, that, Is that what I, think? I think that was probably part of it. Uh, he was he was funny. Um, I enjoyed that he was like one of the only people who didn't get a fuck you, <laughs> which was funny. <laughs> That's true. Um, but uh, but I, I wanted to pick up on some of the stuff that that uh, Byron brought up there because I think it it gets at some of the things I've been trying to think about in relation to like the the questions that Matt was bringing up last week and and this sort of general discussion about things in relation to the show. Um, I really like this. I like this connection that Byron has made between Diane as a as a wholly absent figure, even more absent than Laura, uh, but also sort of reflecting Laura in that they we were both these sort of absent figures. And the absence is, it turns out with Diane, I mean, we wouldn't necessarily predicted this, but it turns out with Diane that this absence and this invisibility is kind of linked to this violence, right? That this this violence happened off screen. It happened without us seeing it, without us having any idea about it or knowing anything about it, which links it to Laura in an interesting way. Obviously, as the show went forward and Fire Walk With Me happened, we do see the violence of Laura, but, at the, but in the original run of Twin Peaks, that had all happened off screen. 
And for me, I'm, I'm finding it really interesting to try to track what's been going on with people's reactions to this particular episode around things like um, implications that Audrey has been abused and that Diane obviously has been abused in some way. And this idea that the show is choosing to be violent to them or that Lynch is choosing to be violent to them. There was a lot of, I, I saw people sort of responding with things like how, how could Lynch do this to Audrey and how could they do this to Audrey? And which is an, and for me, maybe an odd way to react to some of this stuff. My question about a lot of this has been this idea that I find it very interesting that that the violence against women seems to be acceptable in the show when it happens off screen. Like like that, you know, people weren't reacting to Laura in this to this sort of story of Laura in the same way that people have been reacting to the violence of the women on the show. And yet, in some ways, it's it's just as bad, if not worse. But so much of this sort of question of reaction and whether it's misogynistic or not, and all of these things ends up playing out around whether it's being shown to us or not. And I, I find that a really interesting problematic when you think about the idea that so much of violence against women is allowed to perpetuate because it is is largely invisible. Because it is, like, there is a weird pairing there, though, right? But, like, at the same time as it is largely invisible, there is a course of sense in which, as, like, I think Justine has pointed out on our show on a couple of occasions, you know, women tend to be the victims of most, like, generic television and procedurals and all of this stuff. Is like, women's bodies are sort of, like, left, right, and center being victims of things. But this idea that, like, the actual violence being perpetrated against them is is not really shown and yet is so present everywhere. I, I don't know. I think there's something really smart going on here with the way that that invisibility and violence are being tied together here in relation to this stuff now. I would also, this is maybe a slightly more superficial point of production uh, or of, you know, writing, but if you watch your average, um, if you watch a, a police procedural or um, um, a series that centers on the murder of a young woman or, uh, of a young woman, or in the case of, you know, a CSI um, a set, a long set of murders of interchangeable young women. Um, you know, there's always, you know, the mortuary sequence or the morgue sequence where they, they pour over the body and, you know, look for, look for clues. And there is a version of that in the original uh, Twin Peaks. It's interesting that the, the body that is, uh, that is sort of at the center of, of this, of this season of television is not that it's like, it's very explicitly like this portly headless man, that ends up being sort of the um, the bodily place of clues. It's 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 very much not in keeping with that with that cliche. And I I wonder I I can't help but wonder if that was a deliberate choice. That's interesting. We do of course have poor Ruth Davenport's head that was attached to that body that has so hurt. That's true. Her, well, but it's interesting though because again her body has been sort of made um, entirely invisible, right? But um, mm. anyway, I, I do think it's it it's interesting, and we'll no doubt keep talking about this. But the idea that the show is the show is is doubling down on on the fact that it was always about uh, violence against women and certain kinds of invisible violence and violence that happens in dis- in domestic spaces and from people that you wouldn't expect. I actually I was trying to think about this earlier this relationship of of maybe what it does now that like one of the core pieces of violence in the show is now going to be between this interaction between evil Cooper and uh, Diane, you know, whereas the, the show previously had been about these sort of this sort of real malevolence and awfulness at the heart of a kind of family structure here. Now it's, it's something it's like, like a workplace thing almost, right? Like this thing of like a close friend, you know, somebody that Diane has been this sort of close friend and confident of for years turning on her and, and attacking her and like, 
you know, what, what that kind of representation means now, I think is, is an interesting question in relation to, yeah, the show in 2017, all these things. Although you, you, assuming this, you know, we're, we're sort of making assumptions here about what the show is doing that may or may not be true, although they certainly seem to be leaning that way. But if they are leaning that way, then the family theme does return via, via, uh, the younger horn, um, the, uh, the, the evil seed, as we we might say. I, I also think there's something ineluctably familial about a lot of this for the reasons we had talked about earlier, having to do with Lynch's relationship to these actors. One of the first things I thought about after watching the scene between Diane and Evil Cooper was um, something that Dennis Lim mentions in his book on Lynch, namely that Lynch wanted... Uh, growing up, he wanted to see his parents fight. Mm, oh yeah, and uh, and so there's you know one, so something he's certainly doing here is you know he's he's I thought of him as staging a confrontation, um, much as of the sort that he um, might have fantasized his parents having. But it's a bit more interesting and more complicated than that because these are, in a way, his children, Lynch's children, because uh, for reasons you were giving, Kate, uh, Laura Dern was in some sense raised, you know, uh, raised by Lynch. Same with Kyle MacLachlan, their careers entirely parallel to one another and, you know, really beginning in a significant way under Lynch with uh, Blue Velvet. And so it's, it's though he's staging a kind of confrontation between his parents but casting his children as his yeah. parents, but one in which the emotional catharsis of confrontation doesn't actually happen. This connects to issues of, of un unknownness or uh, failure of acknowledgement because Diane realizes that Cooper is not present, that there's, that there's an emptiness there. There's an emptiness in his heart, as she, as she indicates later on. So there's also a failure of confrontation. There's the desire for confrontation, uh, that, uh, for a confrontation that doesn't really happen. And so it's displaced later in, into uh, the moment with, with uh, Gordon Cole. Um, and, um, and so I, I just wanted to say that, you know, there's, there's something ineluctably familial about any of these interactions. Well, and there's, I mean, this maybe doesn't tie in directly with the familial theme, but it does tie in with a tortured audience relationship where for, I mean, one of the things about having this 25 year gap is that, you know, when the original series was happening, you know, there was this huge clamoring for uh, Coop and Audrey to be, to be uh, an item. Um, and, you know, that was... And there were reasons for that. You know, they, there was an obvious sense of like on-screen chemistry, et cetera, et cetera, even though that was complicated by other factors. And then to have, again, if this is what's happening, which again, it seems to be, if this is, what's, if the, the, if this is what they're doing with it, it's a, it's a very poisonous way to, um, to revive that relationship. And it's a very, it's, it's a very loaded, uh, I mean, even more so than it would be with just like any set of characters. It's, it's, to, to exploit that, and I mean exploit in like a loving way, I think, um, to exploit like all the time that's passed and all the anticipation that, that, that's built up to reveal that this is, is sort of going to be the nature of, of their relationship in a sense is like really impactful. Yeah, it's a, I mean, I, I understand why people are upset about this thing with Audrey and Cooper. It's a, it's a really horrible, 
really horrible turn of affairs if that's if that's what is happening here. I mean, it is really, really unpleasant. Um, and I think certainly someone can make an argument that this is the show like hating women or mistreating women. I'm not sure that I, I still don't think that I buy that. For me, I think it is the show refusing to look away from the ways in which, uh, people are, people are hurt. People are mistreated and women represent a good chunk of that, those people who are mistreated. And I, I mean, I think there's another interesting uh, moment in relation to this stuff that we haven't talked about yet in this episode, which is the other Renault brother. Uh, I'm going to forget which name he has. Is it Jean something? Renault? Jean-Pierre or something? Something like that. Uh, the new, the new possibly twin brother of Jacques Renault. It's unclear. Uh, at the end of the, let's just say it, totally, totally amazing sequence of the man sweeping. With green onions. Yep. <laughs> green onions. The entirety of green onions. <laughs> for two and a half minutes. I, I thought we were just waiting for the credits to come up. Like that's one of those things about Lynch is like, you can't tell what time you are at in the episode. I thought that scene was just going to play out until the credits came on. And I was like, totally fascinated by this. My understanding is other people found that scene very tense. You know, this sort of association that Lynch has managed to build between nothing happening and yet that being totally terrifying and I, I thought that was quite interesting too but the, the, the funny thing to me well the funniest thing to me about that sequence before you cut back in to talk about Renault is that the guy doing the sweeping I mean he's doing a really good job he's it's it's, it's, he's, it's very meticulous he's getting every little bit of whatever that detritus is supposed to be um, but because of how much of it he's gotten sort of uh, piled up and taken care of you start to assume okay so the sequence isn't going to be over until every bit is cleaned up. But that's not what happens. He gets most of it. It mostly gets down there and then, you know, and then green onions ends and the phone rings and you don't, you don't even get the satisfaction of a clean barroom floor. <laughs> Lynch is just not going to let you have your fun, Simon. Sorry. No, no, no obsessive compulsives get their uh, payoff at the end of that shot. Um, I mean, I, I don't really have like a solid point about Renault, but all I was going to say was there is, um, Again, this moment, like with Renault, of the show very clearly staging, uh, like another variation of this sort of really disgusting, misogynistic kind of stuff with it, with him talking about these young girls, like these two 15 year old girls, uh, in really grotesque ways. Um, and just the level of like hatred in his voice is something to behold. And I, I just, I, 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 you know, this is just again me tossing this out as like yet another moment in which I think the show is. It's just not as simple. It's not so simple to say that because the show traffics in violence against women, that it is therefore like homogeneously misogynistic. I mean, I think the show is is aware of like these questions and different attitudes and like probing the sort of boundaries of like why it is that we find certain forms of misogyny acceptable and not other forms of misogyny acceptable. And like you know, I, I just think these questions are ongoing on the show. But anyway. The, the the only other thing I'm going to say about that sequence is that I was slightly disappointed only in, in the sense that I thought it would have been hilarious to have like a, a third Renault brother or, or or a twin who's just like a lovely man. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been really, really great. That's, that's okay. You can't always get what you want. No. Another thing I thought no. about with regard to the sweeping, um, this is just very incidental, but I, uh, we don't often see labor in Lynch films. Yeah. Um, we don't often see the productive side of things. Uh, we, we get consumption a lot. We, we get the consumption of, of pie and, and coffee and donuts. Um, but we don't, we've never had a, 
we've never had a, like a Jean Dielbon scene in, in Lynch where it was uh, the making of a co- of, of coffee or anything like that. I'm not saying that we're exactly getting that here. Um, and we didn't really get that even with the scene of um, Janie E. Uh, cooking breakfast a couple episodes back. Um, but it just brought brought that to my mind. And it just made me think of the ways in which, again, as I was saying at the beginning, Lynch is interested in in biological processes like like consuming, not so much interested in economic processes or even the ways in which they they interact. And so that that comes comes up uh, famously in Twin Peaks with the way that uh, consumption, the consumption of food is is so so central to it. Um, that's really interesting. I had not thought of the the labor of that shot necessarily, and I, and I just wanted to put a pitch in that for this because uh, Byron mentioned a film named Jean Dielman. Anybody who's listening to this podcast who does not know what Jean Dielman is, uh, it's spelled J E A N N E D I E L M A N, and it's a film by my, one of my all time favorite filmmakers, a woman named Chantelle Ackerman, who is absolutely amazing, and you should go watch it if you're interested in uh, interesting cinema. You should 100% go do that immediately. Um, and since that was sort of an entree about a sort of unusual filmmaker, um, I thought maybe we could just spend at least a few minutes talking about Rivette, but then I know we want to, there's at least a few more scenes in this episode that we haven't talked about yet. This, this whole episode is full of amazing stuff, so, um, but this, because we've now teased it a couple of times. I wanted to get it in here. Um, this filmmaker named Jacques Rivette, uh, people who are uh, like sort of really serious Lynch nerds have maybe come across this comparison before. Um, Jacques Rivette was a French New Wave filmmaker, so he was making films in the from the mid-60s uh, through the 2000s, uh, mid-2000s actually when he passed away, I believe. But he's also a critic and a thinker. And um, But I've been thinking about Rivette a lot lately in relation to the new Twin Peaks because I think there is a way in which the new Twin Peaks is, is the more Rivette side of Lynch than maybe other other shows have been or other films have been um in the sense that like the connections that are often brought up between the two of them are that they're both sort of fascinated with i don't know this idea of like experience and and by extension cinema as a sort of game that is being set up and being played both by the characters sometimes in the show which and the and the film which is sort of like the way in which mystery and investigation and like figuring out the rules of scenarios and, and clues are kind of a constant theme in Lynch's work on the one hand but then also this game of for the spectator and like this idea that that the whole experience is about sort of trying to make meaning and trying to come to know and try to understand rules. Rules, by the way, that will never entirely become clear to us. I mean, this is the thing about Rivette that's so great is that his characters are always investigating these sort of quests and these sort of situations, but it's never an answer, right? I mean, the, the narrative is there and they sort of go through this quest, but you never get a full answer about anything. And Lynch is so similar. And the reason I brought it up in relation to this week was because I was I was laughing. I sent um, Byron and Simon a link to this earlier. There was a, a post that was making its way around the internet that was people responding to the sequence here uh, in this episode when Gordon Cole and everyone is on the plane and you get an exterior shot of this plane and I, I missed this. Olivier caught it. I missed it. So it's like a sort of blink and, blink and you miss it thing. But the um, this may or may not be intentional. It's unclear. 
but the windows on the plane sort of blink in and out in a kind of weird pattern. And it, and at first you could think it's the sun reflecting off the windows, but on closer inspection, that does not seem to be it. It's like a very deliberate pattern that the windows are sort of blinking in and out. And people responded by like making these charts and graphs and like this, you know, code breaking stuff. They're going to figure this out, this cryptology. And the drawings that people were making are like drawings out of a Rivette film, which is, I, I just thought was such a perfect connection. I couldn't help but bring it up. Honestly, some of it looked like pages from from the Mentaculous from a serious man. <laughs> like it, it it it's it's real intense. I mean, I'm I I don't mean to diminish anyone's efforts. Y'all are amazing, but seriously, uh, the I was expecting a certain amount of 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 viewer obsession. I was not prepared, and I continue to be unprepared. I you know it's uh, funny. I had thought of Revet also in connection and the disappointments of disappointments in knowledge disappointments in the unraveling of conspiracies when um i listened to your guys show on um the lonely souls episode and um and at the end of of your episode kate makes the point that um knowing who the killer of laura palmer is uh doesn't doesn't change anything um things just kind of go on in a certain sense um and um and so I thought of that also, you know, how, how in Rivet there is this, he's, Rivet is so often thematizing the disappointments in the conspiracy, in the conspiracy, in, in the unraveling of these conspiracies and, and showing that there's a real limit in understanding things in that kind of way. And if Lynch is going in that direction, and I, I, I suspect he is in this, I mean, this, the format of this current season is allowing him to do something like that, maybe, I hope. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it is in, an interesting change from the previous iterations of Twin Peaks, because previously, at least as I had understood Twin Peaks, there's a way in which the evil is very local, very localizable. Yeah. You know, it's you know the Ghostwood Forest. It's you know the the, the Owl Cave. The you know it, we we can we can pinpoint locations and we can pinpoint persons. We can pinpoint Bob. We can pinpoint persons that Bob hasn't inhabited. But this but in this season something very different is going on, which is that it's. I mean, this came up I think also a bit in your discussion with Matt last week, which is that. You know, okay, so um, the world has come to Twin Peaks. But in a way, it's also had the Twin Peaks has come to the world, or, or it's been yeah. dispersed around the world. Um, and uh, and one effect of that is is that we can no longer evil is no longer easily locatable. It is taking place in forces that are much more diffuse and distributed, distributed according to different degrees uh, than 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 before. And um, and there's also a way in which it's much more terrifying because. Um, at least when things were locatable, there was a way in which one could rely on the assurances of the community. Think of the way that you know Bobby says at the funeral of Laura Palmer, "You all knew that she was in trouble." You know, even you know, that complaint presupposes that you know everyone could know everything about everyone else. That kind of complaint is impossible to make in the current season. Yeah. Uh, it's like there's a, there's a way in which things have gotten so complicated, the evil has become so diffused, institutionalized, uh, pervaded institutions and our bodies, which is connected to the whole issue of decay. That kind of complaint is impossible to make now. I, I love that last idea you just made there, Byron, about this idea that the decay is as much 
is as much the evil or the killer now as anything like Bob. Like this idea that, that just death simply is, is pervasive, uh, regardless of it. And maybe death, we shouldn't just necessarily equate death with death with evil, right? Because again, I think the rebirth stuff opens onto a more sort of, um, natural idea of death that doesn't necessarily need to mean evil. But I like this idea of, of, yeah, just the prevalence of sort of, of, of loss of life everywhere, uh, is such a common theme. I think that's a really interesting connection to maybe these sort of broader, really interesting points about, yeah, like for lack of a better term, maybe like the neoliberalization of evil. Like it's just everywhere. This sort of network, <laughs> networked evil, um, is, I, I think that's a really sharp idea. The other thing that I, I think what you. Kate, oh, how long have you been waiting to whip out that phrase? <laughs> the neoliberalization of evil? Um, uh, sure. I planned that days ago. I didn't just come up with that right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, I, the point I wanted to make with, um, that, that Byron sort of sparked there for me thinking about this that I, I hadn't really thought about before, but I think is a worthwhile point is, um, you know, the, the sense that I think people have been articulating a lot of their sadness about what has been lost from the old show in relation to Dougie and Coop, right? This idea that we no longer have Coop. Coop used to be our kind of like moral center and all of these things, um, there's something to that, certainly, and I, it's true. But I, I also think there's a really interesting way in which um, Cooper's sort of absence uh, is not the entirety of, of what is missing in relation to what the show used to put around him that was sort of this opposite of the evil or the ability to fight evil, which was a kind of faith in the law, right? Like, we, we talked about this in the past on the old show, which is this sort of idea that in Twin Peaks, there seemed to be a sort of ultimate law that that wasn't necessarily caught up in the kind of vagaries of, like, the day-to-day existence of the law and the fact that it always has to be enacted by humans and therefore can be corrupt and, and, can, and can get off track. In Twin Peaks, there was always this sense of people at least able to strive for and be in touch with an almost spiritual idea of the law, that there was a sort of good force that could be marshaled in humans to fight against these sort of evil things. And it wasn't just Cooper, right? There was a whole series of people that sort of embodied that. And here, that is gone. I mean, we have Sheriff Truman, who seems by all accounts to be a sort of good, solid guy, and, and we believe him. But I think, as you you almost pointed out earlier, Simon, like, he sort of is, is almost on the static end of things. Like, there's very little in the way of sort of movement or action from him. Even Hawk has been largely static, right? I mean, that they're sort of contained. And there's a proliferate... A pro- the proliferation of um, these sort of really negative figures within the sheriff's department, these sort of problems. Uh, I really don't want to believe this is true, and I don't really think it is true, but somebody made the reading of the Andy sequence in this episode where Andy is sort of talking to that guy in front of his house um, as if Andy could almost be a bad, a corrupt cop. Like that Andy is sort of, I don't agree with that. I'm not sure that's the right reading of that sequence. But even then, like the fact that it could even be there is an interesting question, right? Like this idea that this goodness that we used to associate with the law is just gone. Well, I, th- I think that the the read of Andy as a dirty cop is mostly inspired by his Rolex, <laughs> yeah. which um, which we sort of get... A, a, a rather like a, a quite determined shot of so yeah there don't seem to be a lot of details in this series that are arbitrary so i can see why people are reading it that way yeah i forgot about the rolex yes that is true i wouldn't even in, in the in the context of of a work of lynch unfortunately the rolex wouldn't maybe maybe there's a real limitation to what we can understand the rolex uh to be or to mean because one unfortunate thing about Lynch is the extent to which um, 
evil has been coded in terms of class. And you're getting that certainly in the depiction of evil Cooper. It's all throughout the, um, I mean, and, and we, we had it all along in the depiction of Bob and, and coded in terms of class, you know, someone um, living above a convenience store who uh, terrorizes these nice suburban, these, these nice people, people, nice upper middle class people um, and, and takes over their bodies. So I, 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 I'm just, that's, just, that's my uh, way of putting in context that the Rolex thing. That's a worthwhile point to make, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's always been a question for me, right? I mean, like whether these depictions of, uh, you know, people who are not in the middle class in the show, like Shelley and, and uh, I mean, because of course Leo is sort of evil, although he's sort of redeemed by the end of the second season, but, um, you know, like Shelley and Norman, all these people who are not necessarily in the middle class, like whether that is enough to counteract some of these problems with the class question around around evil. I'm not entirely sure that it will. We'll see. We are rapidly running out of time. But oh, no. There are some, I know. But there are some things that we need to discuss, at least briefly. The fight sequence between Dougie slash, I guess we can probably just call him Coop in that sequence, versus Ike, Ike the Spike, not not nearly as effective with a gun as it turns out. There's a lot going on there. Um, the appearance of the arm, uh, the fact that, that Dougie slash Coop like, literally apparently takes a chunk out of, uh, I don't want to call him poor Ike, because he definitely had it coming, but out of, out of Ike. The, like, is like even for Lynch, like totally bizarre, um, sort of man on the street interview shots. There is much of like a, a a stylistic break from the rest of the show, as I can imagine, um, even from like the early episodes. I mean, what wh- what did y'all make of that sequence? I really loved the this move to the digital, um, to the lo-fi, low-quality digital stuff uh, in the second part of it. I mean, I loved the whole action sequence. Like, I was saying this to Olivier, it's it's rare for there to be what you might call an action sequence in Lynch. Like, it's not a very common thing, I feel like. I mean, sure, there's sort of these weird outbursts of violence, but this idea of, like, action in response to it is kind of rare. Um, yeah, a fight scene. Yeah, a fight scene is not very common. Um, so the... Uh, the, so there's that, I mean, which was very interesting, and I think it was all done fascinatingly. And of course, like the evolution of the arm popping up out of the sidewalk is perfect um, in so many ways. Uh, so I loved all of that. I think uh, we need to give like an, a just MVP moment uh, to Naomi Watts in her delivery of these lines to the police about what happened and she's doing these like karate chop moves i i've seen that sequence like four times now i love it it just gets better i don't know what it is if it's like her arm movements and the way she's delivering the lines and the way that the um the dialogue goes just slightly out of sync with her mouth at the end of it like there's something perfect about it it's just a perfect lynch moment with naomi watts killing it um so there's that but then the 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 digital question i mean it it was interesting because like olivier read it as as almost a narrative coding to the audience that you're supposed to get that someone uh random is just filming this on their phone or whatever and that this interview this footage is going to make its way under the internet and that this is going to play some narrative role in relation to like coop's rediscovery or something later on which which you know probably might be true um but i think separate from that there's just some really amazing effective stuff going on there like the the opening the first shot that you get that's the digital shot and it's kind of palm trees in front of a car and i've already seen cinephiles sort of joking about this on twitter but like lovingly joking about it. Uh, but there is almost a way in which it, it, it's like this sort of Michael Mann-esque 
use of the digital. Like it's like these purples and greens and blues that are very different than the color palette of the show so far and this sort of like muddy quality of the digital. And I, I just found it very affecting. Like I, I think it, it mirrors really well this sort of disorientation for anybody who's ever been in a physical confrontation or an accident or anything, you know, then to switch into this mode of this like very like colors are different and it sound is weird and things are off. It, I just thought it worked on so many levels. Especially because we, we so we often suspect that colors are different and sound is off for, for Dougie. Mm, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. We really going to give one last chance to everyone to point out just anything else in this episode. They will uh, go to their graves screaming if they don't mention. Okay, I have one thing, and I kind of just want to hear what other people think about it because I can't believe we haven't talked about it at all. Um, but the, the mm-hmm. diner sequence at the end... Um, Byner, I, By, Byron, I'm not sure if you had been following this on the internet or not, but if you watch that diner sequence... Um, you get you get a one establishing shot on one side of the diner. You go to the other side of the diner. The guy comes in and shouts, uh, and then you flip back to the first side of the diner. But all of the extras have changed, so every body in the diner is different after the guy has come in. And you know, of course, you could probably make the argument that it's like a continuity error. I 100% do not believe that. Like, I just don't believe it. It is so deliberate, this move between the two sides of the diner, the way that it comes back on a beat very clearly, so you're you're paying attention to the cut, um, and the bodies have all been changed. Like, th- there's something there, this idea of this sort of disorientation, or or just, again, this idea that the space of the diner is not... Um, I don't know, metaphysically like settled, for lack of a better word, like something weird is going on there. That mixed with this idea that the diner is like hopping at the end of the night, there's some weird connection there where the roadhouse is empty and the roadhouse is being swept out and we move to the diner, which is this sort of like traditional space in the show of this kind of small town community or something and it's like hopping which is not something that we've seen yet and it was not even that common in the original show um and then of course also just as one final nerd shout out um when you get the music playing towards the end and the credits start rolling uh the music there's the, the song that's Johnny, obvious yeah. that's playing and then underneath that Santa Johnny, and then underneath that, which uh, Simon pointed out, but other people have found this out too. Underneath it, there's like almost a droney type song that's playing, and if you listen to it, it very much seems that it's the wind of from the first time around. <laughs> yeah, so there's a lot of stuff going on in that diner sequence that I feel like we'll have to wait to parse. But anyway, and um, speaking of music, one quick thing that I wanted to get out. So I, I evidently, I, 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 the way I heard the song. That Gordon Cole is humming. It's the theme to Amarcord. Um, oh, really? I, oh, that's the way it sounded to me. And then uh, again, uh, you know, a, a film about a small town. And then this this may be stretching it, but when uh, Lieutenant the Lieutenant from the Air Force uh, sees the body of uh, we, what we take to be Major Briggs, she asks, oh, "Where's the rest of him?" Um, again, uh, Dennis Lim makes a connection between. Lynch and the title of Ronald Reagan's autobiography, Where's the Rest of Me, coming from the line from King's Row, uh, again, a film about a small town. So um, I may be stretching it in both those cases, but that was that they both were connected to films about small towns was the best I could do to make make sense of those illusions. My two favorite pieces of um, Internet sleuthery that were maybe not um, totally lucid were um the when people heard that melody that lynch is whistling um their first association was apparently the same melody appears in a ramstein song so everyone was like oh my god on reddit there was a whole thread oh he's he's whistling ramstein what's going on what's this about he's whistling ramstein in front of an atom bomb (laughs) it's like 
anyway so that was kind of funny and on the message board that i post on someone had taken a still image of um during the fight scene there's um someone is sort of flailing around but they've got one hand in their pocket or in their their at their side or something but he kind of looks like it's a one-armed man <laughs> and so they were just like oh my god it's another <laughs> one-armed man what's going on and then they they went back and watched it and like no he's just he's, the other arm is just obscured but it's it's funny to watch like no one's quite <laughs> sure how what what how much reading is overreading on this well and i i love that cuz no no amount of reading is overreading oh read read away this is the humanity is in the 2017 read read away yeah, anyway like what else are you going to do look outside everything sucks all we have is twin peaks enjoy it <laughs> <laughs> well that wasn't my point about that but Anyway, I also just want to jam in there because we didn't talk about it, but like Charcoal Man is back in the hallway. I loved that sequence. It was so creepy when Charcoal Man is walking behind her in the hallway. It was perfect. So hopefully we'll have yeah, more of an excuse I, to talk about I'm him not going to spoil episodes. it, but I read a very credible theory about who that is and the fact that it just is someone. Again, I wasn't necessarily expecting it. I would be perfectly happy to have a mystery Charcoal Man, but to have an explanation would also be cool. <laughs> Well, uh, I wanted to say uh, thank you, Byron, for coming on and uh, letting us talk about some sort of the philosophical angles of Twin Peaks. I loved it. So thank you for coming on. Oh, it was it was a real pleasure. I, I really enjoyed it. And you're doing a great job with the show. I've, I've listened to about a third of the episodes and enjoyed all of them. So thank oh, we, you. We've, we've enjoyed Thanks, recording Byron. most of that them. That means a lot. That, that was, that was a joke. We've enjoyed recording all of them. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> yes. Thank you, Byron. This ruled um are, are you are you on the interwebs are you on twitter or anything i'm not on twitter in any significant way um i use instagram pretty frequently um my my instagram name is uh byron 9619 i think i think that's what it is byron is a really wonderful painter and uh if you're interested in lynch's paintings you you would i'm sure get very much aesthetic joy out of byron's paintings and i think you post them on instagram every once in a while right byron yeah i've i've that's another way in which i feel a kind of affinity with lynch is, is through through painting yeah thank you yeah of course um all right thanks simon and sorry to make more editing work no for you. no I'm it's, shutting it's up now. all good um <laughs> i love editing editing is my favorite thing to do um so yeah um i would just <laughs> i have to give my usual spiel uh shout out to sorted cinema slash goombastan for the hosting um do rate review the show on itunes um the show may soon be um appearing in other realms as well besides itunes and stitchers so stay tuned for that um that's probably all i'm going to say about that for now um so yeah again ratings and reviews really help us to stand out i noticed we got a couple of new ratings on the u.s itunes so thank you for that um and it hasn't if if anyone did give us below five stars it didn't it it didn't register as that on the no i'm just gonna get that part blah, blah, blah. thank you for the ratings uh we really really appreciate it Re reviews are even better um from any country on itunes it, it's all it all helps with, with visibility and uh yeah thanks byron thanks kate we will be back uh at roughly around the same time next week and i want to caution you in advance the week after that there is no episode on the uh, on the july 1st weekend so you there will be a week where there is no new peaks so just psychically prepare yourselves for it everyone but that's not next week it's the week after anyway thank you all so much mm -hmm.